This morning, we're going to um, tackle a good chunk of James 3. We're actually going to touch, touch on all of James 3, but we're really um, going to dig a little bit more into um, the, first, the first half of it. Uh, but this is one of those chapters, just so you know, is another time where James um, is going to just be pretty straightforward uh, in what he's communicating. And our biggest struggles with passages like what we're going to face today is when we, um, really, when we try to overcomplicate things as a way of almost protecting ourselves and distracting from what's really going on in our hearts. So I just want to encourage you this morning, um, don't, don't overcomplicate things. Don't get caught in tangents. Don't get caught in like, um, like quibbling over little words or details, but just let God move through this passage uh, we will see another example here today of, of the parallels between James and the Sermon on the Mount. And that's very fitting because we said that when we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, that the Sermon on the Mount is um, arguably the most, the most challenging discourse ever, um, ever shared or spoken in human history. And yet it's not challenging in that it's difficult to understand. It's challenging in that it's difficult to accept and to live. And so James is going to do something similar here today. So let's pray together and ask God for help. Lord, help us as we read your word. Lord, help us to, um, to be soft-hearted to what we hear, to know that we don't need to be afraid, Holy Spirit, of your conviction because your conviction is delivered in gentleness and kindness. And that conviction is always met with a path forward to turn and to repent and to be forgiven and to receive new life. So Lord, let us not be afraid of that. Let us actually anticipate that and desire to be convicted, to see our hearts. Lord, so we ask that you search our hearts show us where there are unrighteous ways that we might be forgiven and redeemed and renewed so we can experience the abundant life that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. James 3, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. This is another passage that is pretty well known to, to you. If you grew up in the church at all, it's probably something that you have heard before. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, it may very well be something that you have heard before. 
And it's interesting that in this whole passage of taming the tongue, he starts out with why many of you should not become teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. What James is really setting the stage for is the power of words. And it's interesting in light of what we've talked about the last couple of weeks where we've kind of diminished the power of words. We've said like, well, it doesn't just matter about like what you say you believe, but actually your actions demonstrate what you actually believe, right? And so it can feel a little contradictory again, like, wait a second, James, are our words a big deal or are they not a big deal? And he would just say, yes, they are both. And the thing that we see here is that though words, mere words cannot save Mere words cannot fill a person's belly or give them warmth. Words can destroy. Words can tear down. It's a big deal. And and James wants to confront, and I don't know, I don't know if he's doing this as a balance to what comes before, so the less people get into a, a frame of mind where like, hey, it doesn't even matter what you say, just as long as you do the right things, who cares what you actually speak of? And he's saying here, no, actually, it's really important, the words you use. It boasts the tongue is small, but don't underestimate it. It boasts of great things. And then he goes on and shares these illustrations. If your tongue is under control, then you will be also like a bit in a horse's mouth or like a rudder on a ship. And so it seems like he could just end that by saying, okay, so get your tongue under control. Watch what you say and everything will be fine. There's just one problem with that. The tongue is untamable. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. That feels a little extreme. I mean, if the idea is like, hey, listen, all you got to do is control your tongue. If you control your tongue, everything in your whole body, like everything else is under control. You're a perfect man. And that's great, except for one thing. It is a world of unrighteousness. It stains the whole body. It burns your whole life down with the fire of hell. It is restless evil, full of deadly poison. And so deceptive that we can bless God with the same tongue that then curses those who are made in God's image. He's basically saying it is so destructive and so poisonous at its root that you can't tame it. You can't control it. 
And he gives the example of blessing God and cursing people made in the image of God. You, you praise God and, and say all the right things, but similar though, so, so we start to see that it's not actually different from before, right? He's saying, you say this stuff, you bless God and you say all these great things, but then you actually turn and you curse those who are made in God's image, those for whom Christ died. He said, brothers, these, these things ought not to be so. And we see it, right? Think of how words have caused this kind of pain and destruction in your life. Things people have said to you, scars that you might carry. Maybe it's the sharp, critical, angry words of a parent growing up. Or a poorly timed comment that embarrassed you in front of friends or rumors and gossip about your situation by people who don't know anything about your situation? Have you had relationships broken and destroyed by utterances of things like, I don't love you anymore. You're a failure. And even as we have felt that, if we look closely, we see that we have done that to others as well. And no matter, no matter how many times we promise ourselves we won't do that again or we're not going to repeat those mistakes or what was done to us we're not going to do to others, it still comes out. Maybe the things that your parents said to you growing up, you find yourself saying to your kids. but that's even assuming that you're even aware of it. And the reality is, what James is saying, remember, he's talking to believers. He's not talking to the world. He's not talking to, to people who have not trusted in Christ. He's talking to the church. And he's saying it's dangerous. It's destructive. It looks different for different people, but this is a common human condition that we cannot tame the tongue whether it's gossip and slander or harsh critical words or passive aggressive words or dismissive flippant words or mockery it is all deadly poison that destroys lives with the fire of hell and our tongue is untamable and it's untamable by our own strength because it's not about the words that we say. It's about what the words we say reveal that's going on in our hearts. Continuing on in James, he says, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Does that sound familiar? It should. When we talked about the parallel of James and the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6, in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. 
The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Here's the diagnostic that James is giving us, that your words, my words, actually flow out of what I really feel, like what's actually going on inside of my heart. You cannot tame the tongue apart from the spirit because it is a matter of the spirit. It is a matter of the heart. And so we try in a lot of different ways to cover things up. We try really hard to control and to tame our, our tongues in different ways. Some of us try to cover up what, they, what we really want to say with something that sounds nice. Right? Have you ever done that? Where you're like, I, I, like this is what I want to say, but I need to say something polite. And then what comes out is something like, oh, bless your heart. Which anyone who's from south of the Mason-Dixon line knows immediately I, I've shared this before, but it was years ago, that um, I grew up with my grandma saying that to me all the time, and I always thought it was a good thing. She would say that to me, she'd be like, oh, bless your heart, and I'd be like, yeah, bless my heart. You like me, grandma, and now I realize she was saying, oh, poor kid. <laughs> Realizing it's probably followed up with a conversation with my parents, like, what are we going to do with this one? We're gonna, what are we gonna, how are we going to intervene on this? And so we know that culturally, and if you've ever been in that situation, have you ever received those kinds of words where you can immediately tell that the nice words that someone is saying are, is not actually what they mean? And you're just looking at them and saying like, oh, that feels, that feels forced. And that's like that illustration we talked about when we preached on this passage you know, months ago, that it's like taking you know, bad fruit and then duct taping good fruit back onto it, onto this tree and saying like, no, here's good fruit and saying that that wasn't produced. You just kind of force that on there and there's just duct tape all around. That's not the same thing as producing good fruit. And other people say, listen, I know that I can't fake it, so I just bite my tongue and I don't say anything at all. But that's like pulling up a weed without getting the root. You might be able to cut it off. And you can bite your tongue once, but harsh words are going to come up again. And often worse than the time before. See, eventually your words reveal your heart. And we see it all the time with tone of voice or facial expression and just trying to get that under control and stopping yourself at this point isn't the aim in Christianity and it's not all that God has to offer us and James is saying listen the reason why it's so untamable is because it comes from a diseased heart it comes from a bad spring or Jesus would say from a bad tree and everything then is tainted. No matter how you twist or shape words, no matter what you keep yourself from saying, it's all tainted. It stains the whole body. James goes on and reveals this more when he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So here he's connecting those but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile 
practice. See, anything uttered from this kind of, of heart is not the wisdom of God that James told us to ask for. It does not reveal the faith that James says saves. Anything uttered from this kind of heart, even if the facts are right, even if it sounds nice, this is yet again where we see you can, you can be right and still be wrong. The defense of like, well, well, it's the truth, isn't it? If, you, if you've ever said that or heard that, well, it's the truth, isn't it? It's rarely a very good defense. Because typically, when that is said, it's when you have offended someone with jealousy or selfish ambition or arrogance or self-righteousness. It's kind of like when you start a statement with no offense, but like you know that that's a guarantee that offense is coming. And whenever you have, find yourself saying, well, it's the truth, isn't it? That's probably a covering up of a poisoned well that is springing forth things that are, as James says, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's a big deal. The truth that is spoken in arrogance, harshness, flippancy, it is unearthly, spiritual, unspiritual, and demonic. Let us understand. And if this is what is in your heart, you won't be able to hide it. If you're feeling judgmental toward your neighbor, then you will come off condescending, even if you say the right words. If you feel bitterness in your heart, it will come out when you ask for help or offer it. If you feel unnoticed and unseen, it will come out in your boasting. So when a preacher is angry, it shows, and it's not the same thing as passion. When a person is judgmental, it shows, and it's not the same thing as holiness or a seriousness about sin. When a person lacks compassion, it shows, and it's not the same thing as being brave or speaking truth or being uncompromising. And where that is, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Do you see the seriousness of it? James is not holding back here at all. He is being really clear of how big of a deal this is. And we tend to not only, we tend to overvalue words where we should not value them as much, like when it comes to just believing the same things and thinking that, you know, and, and thinking about theological truths and like, well, as long as I say I believe these things, as long as I pray this prayer, I'm fine. And then we tend to undervalue words when it comes to the destruction that it can cause. Like, ah, they just, you know, sticks and stones. We need to be mindful of this, of how serious it is. And I don't know about you, but as I was reading this, and as I was preparing this, this is one of the reasons why I'm going into the rest of chapter three, because it's a little bit of a downer. Like, I can tell that, like, everyone right now is just like, Okay, is this almost done? Because this, this is not fun. Where's Fun Jay? I like Fun Jay. I mean, I don't know about you, but I read this and I think about it, and I, my mind started getting flooded by the harsh 
critical words that I have spoken in my house. The mockery that I have done in the name of just like having a sense of humor. And it's crushing. And after reading this, the verse that popped into my mind is Romans 7, 24, where Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, if James is saying, listen, this is the destruction that is being caused by your words, and guess what? You can't control your words. You're just going to keep doing it over and over and over again. Well, then who will deliver me from this body of death? this tongue of deadly poison. Thanks be to God and Jesus Christ. See, the thing is, is we don't need new actions. We don't need new coping skills or new tricks to bite your tongue or nicer ways of saying things. That's what the world offers. If you've ever read an article that says, here are 10 things you should never say in an apology and here are the 10 right ways to apologize. It's baloney. Do you know why? Because it doesn't affect the heart. I have had people say things to me that if you just took them out of context of their tone and their voice and everything, you put it on paper, you would say, wow, that's terrible. But out of the heart, even our broken words are understood. But out of a bad heart, out of an evil tree that produces evil fruit, Even the most well-crafted statement is destructive. So we don't need new phrases to say or new tricks. If we want to tame the tongue, we need a new heart. And there is only one place to get a new heart. And that's in Christ. It's in his life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you are sitting here this morning and you are saying, I have felt convicted over my words and how they have caused destruction and pain in people's lives, then know that the answer to that is going to be in being made new in Christ. In his life, death, and resurrection. Because Jesus is the perfect manifestation of the righteous tongue in his life. Think about the Gospels. Think about how Jesus speaks to people. He never says an unintentional word. He is always a defender of others. He doesn't throw people under the bus. He doesn't take cheap shots to make himself look more powerful or more righteous. He is a speaker of truth and love, always together, the right time, in the right place, in the right way. He says things like, daughter, particularly chosen word, daughter, your faith has made you well. He says things like, is there no one left to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Says things like, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. This is the way our Jesus speaks. This is the tongue. This is the spring, the pure, fresh water that springs out, the eternal living water that flows out. Everything Jesus said was a well of fresh water. Everything. 
And for those who had ears to hear, it was refreshing and powerful and life-giving. Always. And so it is in his life that we see that's what that looks like. And it's through his death that we receive credit for everything he did in his life. Because through repentance, we receive that righteousness, credit for his work. We put to death our sinful flesh and our sinful hearts that produce these sinful and destructive words. We die to our old ways of thinking and speaking that get us into all of those messes. And we claim and receive the righteousness of Christ in his death. And through his resurrection, we get to become like him. We get to take on his life and in the power of the spirit, we get to become more and more like that as the salt water of the spring of our heart gets weeded out and filtered out and a new heart produces new fresh water. We'll keep using this phrase, the commands of scripture and what James is calling us to here, they are not a bar for us to achieve, to just get better and stop saying bad words and and start speaking life to people. It's not a bar that we are meant to achieve, it's a promise that is being fulfilled in us. I'm going to keep saying that phrase over and over and over again until you kick me out of here or until the Lord takes me home. The commands of Scripture are not a bar to achieve. They are a promise being fulfilled in you of this is who you are becoming because of Jesus. And so we get to be like him. We get to speak words of life as Christ did. What James calls the wisdom from above. Look what he says. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you want that? Like, Do you want to have that, the wisdom of God from above that's peaceable and gentle? Do you want that to be describing of, of your words? Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And ultimately, here's what we find. Our new hearts given to us in Christ, they become centered on Christ. A heart that is centered on Christ and others produces the words of life. A heart that is centered on yourself will produce the words that destroy. It's basically the great commandment. It's almost like Jesus meant when he said, when he said all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Spoiler, he did mean what he said when he said that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And he kind of like, as a little help, hey, if you're struggling with what that looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, love them as you would want to be loved. Just imagine if our words were always starting there. What, how do I love God with these words that I'm about to say? How do I love my neighbor? How do I speak to them or about them in a way that I would want them speaking to or about me? Do you see what I mean when I say it's, it's actually not that complicated to understand? It's just 
hard to accept and to want so much that we're willing to die to ourselves and die to our old ways. And so for the last few minutes, I just want to get really practical. Sometimes I get accused of not being practical enough, and I I get it. So I'm going to be really practical here. And just things that I've seen and ways that I've seen words hurt and cause destruction in our culture and just say, "Let's, let's repent and let's turn and receive the righteousness of Christ and walk in the newness of life. Let's do that when it comes to gossip and slander. One of the things that I learned about moving into a small town, having never lived in a small town, was that everybody knows about you, but very few know you. Everybody thinks they know what makes you tick, what your motivations are, why you said what you said, why you did what you did, what that really meant. And it leads us to be in this poisonous culture where we share that because we're so confident in it and we're just sharing truth or reality. And even when we're confronted with gossip, we say, well, I don't, I don't mean to gossip. Like if you ever in a conversation say, I don't mean to gossip, it's a pretty good hint that that's what's coming. Not calling it gossip doesn't mean it's not gossip. We tell ourselves that we're just informing people or sharing a prayer request, but it flows from a poisoned well of bitterness, jealousy, identity issues. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Gossip is centered on how I'm viewed. So maybe heart motivations are you want to be the one to share the news. You want to be the one that's in the know that people turn to and look to for information, that you're connected like that. Or maybe it's you want to look better in front of the people so you need to tear somebody down so that you look better by comparison. Or your experiences with that person makes you think that you know their motives because that was their motive before. Your confidence in your own wisdom to understand what's really going on. It's all self-focused and it causes great destruction. Did you know that outside of just plain heresy, just out and out heresy, the biggest issue dealt with in the, in the church, in the, in the epistles, in the New Testament church, are the problems of division and disunity caused by words, typically gossip and slander. Do you want to derail the work? Like, incredible things are happening here. You want to derail the work of this church? You can just start to spread discontent and division by questioning motives of the elders or of the staff and just light a little tiny fire and walk away and be like, well, you know, I was just sharing. It's no big deal. And while that fire burns, it causes great destruction. It's easy to say, even as our church, that is clearly the biggest threat to what God is doing and has been doing over the last 48 years in this church family. It's not even close. If you look at the past 48 years, we haven't had big biblical theological controversies. The elders and the pastors of this church have taught, consistently taught the Bible, Orthodox Christianity, 
There's never been any issues that I'm aware of over that, no divisions over um, theological issues. Over the course of 48 years, there hasn't been issue of corrupt leadership. That doesn't mean leadership has been perfect by any stretch, but there's not been any scandal or any violation or betrayal on a big scale, no pattern of abuse by leaders. Now, what has caused issues and still to this day is what causes issues in most of the churches in our culture, which is the spread of misinformation, the assumption of wrongdoing, and the spreading of discontent and distrust among people who are expressing their own identity issues. And that's not healthy. It's not good. Something is said in, in a sermon by Jeff, not by me. Nobody ever misinterprets anything I say. <laughs> Clean it up, Jeff. Um, did he actually? Oh, no, he is still there. Um, but something said in a, a sermon or a business meeting, it's misinterpreted, and then that misinterpretation is shared as fact, and others are confused and hurt. And often a story I get back to me is I said, well, you should go and talk to Jay, or you should talk to the elders and ask them, like, well, what do they really mean? Like, oh, no, 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 it's not that big of a deal. Do you see how that works? And James would say, no, 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 no. That right there is revealing a heart that is poisoned because a desire to understand is the wisdom from above. The open to reason is the wisdom from above. And when we look to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus when it comes to this, our Jesus never gossips. He never slanders. He never throws people under the bus to make himself look better. And so when you hear it in yourself, confess it. Cut it out. Don't defend or deflect any of those things we said. Just confess it. Think about if you would want somebody saying that about you to this group of people. Would you want people assuming your motives without talking to you? Would you want people... No. Would you want people saying that you, like, misinterpreting and twisting your words. Think of Jesus standing there with you and saying, like, is this, is, is this honoring to him? And die to your desire to be a news sharer. Die to your desire to control the narrative and live, live not for the praises of men. Die to your assuredness that you know motivations and humble yourself to seek understanding. And when you hear it from others, gently, gently steer a person toward what would be fruitful. We need to cultivate a culture that's inhospitable to gossip. And here's what you'll find when you do that. The soft-hearted person who does not want to gossip but is stumbling into it will be thankful. Because sometimes we gossip because we don't know what else to do. We don't know where to take something. We're just saying it because we're like, I, you feel powerless, you feel hopeless, and you, somebody has wronged you, and you don't know what to do with it, and so you share it. And my encouragement in that is when that happens, to call out and say, hey, Let's go talk to that person. I'll go with you. Or, hey, that might be scary. Maybe you're not sure how to do that. Like, let's talk to one of the elders. Let's go and let's see if we can get some help in this and figure out how do we proceed in a way that is honoring to Christ. 
So let me be really clear about this just because I've talked so much about leadership and pointed that out and in, ironically not wanting to be misunderstood. It's not gossip to go to one of the elders and say, hey, I don't know how to deal with this. To any of the elders. Or to say, I don't know, like, I, let's say it's me. Let's say I say something, whether it's in a sermon or just in a conversation, and you feel like hurt or confused by that. It is not gossip at all to go find Kevin and say to Kevin, like, hey, Jay said this, and I'm kind of nervous about it. Like, I feel like I should talk to him about it, but he's kind of scary. And, you know, which I get, actually. Like, I know it sounds funny. Like, some of you laughed and thought, Jay's scary. Yeah, I get it. But, like, two-year-olds find me scary for sure. Unless they're Joe's two-year-olds, then they, they're, they're used to giant bearded men. So that's no big deal. Um, but, like, most people, like, it can be intimidating. It can be intimidating to talk to somebody that's offended you. We are here to help you. And what Kevin will do is will encourage you and, and listen to you and be empathetic and understand and then try to figure out like, okay, what do we do, what do, we do next with that? So we want to be open to all of those things. We want to be inhospitable to gossip. And one of the ways to be inhospitable to gossip is to be able to receive criticism. And to be able to cultivate a culture of healthy calling one another out and confronting sin in one another so that we don't feel like we have to just resort to telling other people. All right, I spent a lot of time on gossip and slander, so the other ones are just going to be bullet points. Gossip and slander is a huge one. Harsh, critical, biting words that tear people down, that make them feel inferior. These words stick with people. Maybe you're somebody that gets louder and louder or you cut people down as a way of winning an argument and we speak harshly when we want to inflict our own judgment and justice on someone self-focused critical words words that lack compassion angry words they're all selfish and self-centered because the whole world is not bending to my will and when the world doesn't bend to my will and do things the way that I think they should be done and act the way that I think they should be act, then it comes out in angry and harsh and critical words. And Jesus never does this. Jesus, the only human that's ever walked the earth who actually can and should require people to bend to his will, does not speak in this way. Jesus is constantly surrounded by people who did not believe him, did not understand him, did not know truth, and continued in their sin arrogantly and dismissively, and yet his predominant emotion is compassion. He didn't nag. He didn't harp. He didn't walk around criticizing everything everyone did. Why? Because he had compassion and he loved them. He understood them in their weakness. He met them where they are. And I'll just tell you, some of my biggest regrets in parenting have been critical, harsh words to my kids when what they needed was understanding and help. So repent. Speak as Jesus speaks. Maybe you say, look, well, I don't, no, I'm actually really nice about how I'm critical and harsh. That's called passive-aggressive speech. 
right? That's where you say, like, I never yell. And so you might say, like, I, no, I never yell at my, at my kids, even though they deserve it. That's called passive-aggressive. You want to be seen as gentle, but what you really want to do is take that jab and make sure that the person knows that you're not pleased with what they did. It's still people not bending to my will. It just is, looks gentler. You joke about it with just a little sting of truth, just to let the person know you're not really upset. In fact, it's almost like a, it's almost this weird, twisted way of feeling even more spiritual because I'm basically saying it's like 95% not a big deal, but 5% it is. That's actually not better. And Jesus is never passive-aggressive. He never just tosses in a little jab He never says things, some of the horrifying things that I've seen on church signs out by the road. Just a little jab about how hot hell is. That's always a fun one. It's earthly and unspiritual and demonic. Jesus is rarely angry, and when he is, he shows it clearly. When he confronts something, he does so directly often gently. You could argue that his parables are passive-aggressive, but they're not. They're subtle for those who have ears to hear. And there's a huge difference between subtlety and passive-aggressive speech. Subtlety is a good tool of gentleness to help someone see the truth and understand something. That's subtlety. Passive-aggressive speech is a sucker punch to make yourself feel better and for the other person to feel a sting of pain that you feel they caused you. And a Christ-like heart takes the focus off of my own sense of justice and turns it onto them to consider how to understand, to seek to understand, to be gentle, to be direct so that I can be helpful. To first think like, should I even be upset about this? Is this even a thing? And if it is, to share that with the person to help them so that they would know for next time how to love you better, how to love others better. So it might look like something like, hey, I, I confess that I'm really sensitive about this issue, but when you said this, it, it hurt. And I know you didn't intend to hurt my feelings with that. I just wanted you to know so that so that, that would be helpful in the future. and confess and repent and walk in the righteousness of Christ. And the last one is just that sometimes we're just careless with our words. So sometimes we're slandering and conniving and, and deceptive in our words, like through slander and gossip. Sometimes we're directly jabbing and, and harsh and critical with our words. But sometimes we're just careless. And we give flippant, dismissive words where we tell people that what they're feeling isn't a big deal, that it's not actually what they think it is, to just get over it, to tell people they're not feeling what they're feeling. This has come up in a lot of different areas, and one that I, I'm not shy to point out is often how a lot of us respond to issues of racial injustice. 
to just be flippant and dismissive and to say, no, 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 it's not, that's not actually a thing when we don't actually know what it's like to be in that situation, to know whether it's a thing or not. But not just that. Pick any situation that you don't have experience, any sin that you struggle with, any issue that you struggle with, and we just become dismissive. And the reason that we become dismissive of it is because you sharing that, you sharing your experience about that makes me uncomfortable. It knocks me off course. Like, I am fine with the narrative that I have, and if you start poking at that, then, like, I just don't want to have to deal with it. I want to get past it as quickly as possible. So why can't we just get past this? And we might give religious platitudes to kind of cover it up, but Jesus doesn't give religious platitudes to dismiss people what they're going through. He of all people knows that what they're going through is small and momentary. Paul knows that it's light, momentary affliction. We know those things. We know that God is sovereign. We know he's in control. We know he's making all things right. But yet Jesus, even though he knows all of that, he still sits with people and hears them and understands. And he enters into their grief and he understands them. He's constantly interacting with people who are grieving over temporary things. And sometimes he's even about to fix them, and yet he's never flippant. Flippant, dismissive words are not kingdom words. So we need to repent of our lack of compassion, enter into grief, and seek understanding. And the last one that I hoped I wouldn't have time for, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's most convicting to me, is mockery. Listen, Humor can be a really helpful tool, just like subtlety can be a really helpful tool. But mockery is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Belittling someone because of their worldview or struggle or because you don't understand it, because you don't think it's a big deal, is evil. Because mockery seeks to shame and make people feel stupid. Mockery is what we use to make ourselves feel superior or defend ourselves. We mock people because of the struggles they're going through. Sometimes it's just on social media. We put out those cutesy little memes that belittle someone's struggle. We mock people who are hurt whose feelings are hurt by us because they're not tougher as a way of protecting ourselves from feeling any sense of responsibility for what we've said. We don't want to look foolish. We don't want to look wrong. And so we mock. And James says, you praise God and then you curse the person who's struggling. The person who's made in the image of God. That should not be so. And because I said that with... um, since I'm just going for it, talked about racial injustice, and I'm going to say here, I've seen it a lot, and I'm just going to call it out when it comes to gender issues. It's not funny. Mocking a child or teenager or an adult who is so confused about who they were created to be and they're listening to a world that's telling them that the answer will be found in them being their own God, it's not something to mock. It's something to grieve over. It's something to reach into and enter into with them to say, I know this is scary, but there is a God who knows you and created you and loves you.
See, Jesus doesn't mock. His goal is never to shame or to belittle or to make people feel less than. His goal is to never embarrass people or to look smarter himself. He treats people as image bearers of his father, and that is how we're called to treat others. This is where, if I was really skilled, I would enter in a joke to release the pressure, but I don't have one. So there's the joke. Joke's on me. Someone that always has a joke doesn't have a joke. Because the reality is I enjoy humor. Humor can build up. Humor can let down our guard so that we can receive truth. It's a beautiful gift, but perverted, it's destructive. And that's what I hope we see with all of this. In Christ, redeemed, our words have the power to speak life, to build up, to encourage, to empower, but perverted, those same gifts that we have, turn our words into destructive forces. So let's seek God. Let's seek the kingdom. Let's seek Christ. Imagine what it could be. Imagine if we were known. Imagine a community where people heard words that flowed from a Christ-like heart as they walk around. Imagine if they hear and they see gossip is non-existent where words of encouragement are constantly spoken, where words of compassion are spoken to the hurting, where words of hope are spoken to the struggling, where words of rejoicing are are spoken to those who are rejoicing, words of mourning are spoken to those who grieve, words of wisdom are spoken to those who are seeking wisdom from above, not unearthly or earthly, unspiritual and demonic wisdom. Our words matter. They reveal our heart. So let the heart of Christ be on display by what we say to one another. And let it be most intense here. Let it be most intense when we are gathered together. So that that would equip us and help us as we go out from here. See, in Jesus, we see the perfect use of words. And we repent of our own words of destruction. And we confess our inability to tame it, but we receive a new heart in Christ. So confront those words. Ask, what do they reveal in my heart? Ask others who are close to you, what do these words reveal? Turn to Jesus, surrender to him, repent and receive a new heart. And then out of that fresh spring will flow fresh water and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that we can come to your word and that we don't have to be afraid of what we find here because you are with us. And so, Lord, I pray right now for anyone that would be hearing any of this and anyone that would feel under any kind of condemnation, Lord, that they would quickly turn to you, that they would feel the conviction that they are meant to feel in the power of the Spirit, but that that would be met with forgiveness and grace and also anticipation and joy of being able to be a person who speaks life to other people. So Lord, use us as people of the kingdom, as children of the kingdom who exhibit a wisdom that comes from above. Let us be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Let us be people who demonstrate through our actions the faith that we have. 
And let us be a people whose words flow out of a new Christ-like heart. Words of truth, words of peace, words of love, words of encouragement, words of compassion. And above all, Lord, let us love you and glorify you with our words and let us love our neighbor as ourselves with our words. In Jesus' name, amen.